Okay, good morning, Gateway family. It is great to see you all this morning. If you're going to be making your way back to your seats, we are so grateful that we get to gather together to worship the Lord this morning. I'm thankful for those of you who are able to be here in the sanctuary. We're grateful you're here. And I know that many of you have told us you're worshiping from home this week as the COVID cases are spiking in Montgomery. And we just want to welcome you if you're tuning in virtually from home this morning. There's a few announcements this morning, but first I want to give you an update from the elder team related to COVID and kind of why we're doing what we're doing. If you're a member or attending at Gateway, hopefully you saw an email from our elder team. That's the seven of us who are tasked with shepherding this body of believers here at Gateway. Hopefully you saw that update. If not, you can just go to our website, gatewaybaptist.com. Click on the link on the front page for news and events. There's an update from the elder team for you on how we're viewing COVID and how we're approaching it. I just want to highlight a few things for you in that. One is our commitment to as much as we can remain open. We know that there are always risks when people gather, and so we want to encourage you to do all you need to do for your personal health. Masks are available in the back, hand sanitizers all around campus. Whatever you need to be able to gather, we want to encourage you to do that. We want to show much grace. People have different views of what they should and shouldn't do for their own personal health, and we want you to make decisions that are right for you and your family on that. Know you have our blessing. Do whatever you need to do with that. But we want as much as we can to remain open during this season because... Yes, there are always risk of gathering, but friends, there's also risk if we don't meet. There is so much that we need in our spiritual good of being together, to study the word together, and to pray together, and to worship the word together, and to have community, and see each other face to face. So as much as possible, we're going to try to keep things as normal as we can while mitigating the risk as much as possible, and ultimately just taking it to the Lord in prayer. We also want to recognize just out in the community at large, there's just a lot of fear related to COVID. And if you're struggling with fear, we're here to pray with you and talk to you about that. The Bible has so much to speak about fear and the commands to not fear and not be anxious. And it's really easy to be anxious in days like this. So if we can pray over you and help you wrestle through those things, know we're available. We love you guys. We also want to recognize some of you are sick. And if you are sick and have needs, please let us know how we can help. We know some of you guys are sick at home right now. And if we know you're sick, hopefully you're getting contacted by the elders and by others. I was praying for you and seeing what your needs are. But if you're sick and we don't know it, please reach out to us and let us know. If you have practical, tangible needs that we as the elders and deacons can help address during these crazy days, we want to help you with that. So please let us know how you're doing and how we can pray for you in that. Now, with that said, again, we're going to try to keep schedule as normal as possible. There is one schedule change coming up. We have planned to launch Wednesday night activities this coming Wednesday. We're actually going to delay that three weeks. Just again, with all this going on with the spike in COVID in the community, we think it's wise to delay that just a few weeks to give a little more space between our primary gatherings. And so our Wednesday night activities will now resume on September 8th, Lord willing. We do a men's book study of Every Good Endeavor. It's a Tim Keller book of how our faith should shape how we view our work. There's going to be a women's Bible study that Karen Fowler's lady. Karen's back over here. If you want to know more, you can talk to her on Abide in Him from John 15. And so ladies, if you're going to do that study, let her know so we can have adequate resources for you. We'll also have our youth Bible study on Wednesday nights, a college life group. There's just going to be a lot of opportunities. But again, we're going to plan for that to resume on September 8th. Eight. There's a few other non-COVID-related announcements I want to mention to you. First of all, ladies, there is a ladies' retreat coming up October 8th through 10th. This is going to be a simulcast of the Nancy Lee DeMoss Revive Conference, and you'll be going down to the beach, down to the Gulf Coast, to stay in a house together and do the simulcast and have a chance to really dig into God's Word together. Now, we need to know if you're planning to come. There's a $50 deposit that's due by the end of this month. So the details are on the website at gatewaybaptist.com. Missy Cruz in the very back there. So Missy's going to wave her hand for you. If you don't know Missy, Missy in the very back by the doors there. She can tell you much more about that. But please see her visit the blog if you need more information. Three other quick announcements. One, we have ongoing life groups. If you're going to connect in community, there's lots of ways to do that here at Gateway. Even though Wednesday nights have not started back, there's Sunday school classes, Sunday Bible study groups that meet 
on Sunday mornings. We have three adult groups going on in the gym building. The information is on the website. We also have life groups in homes. There are several different studies that are going on in people's homes midweek. And it's for you to know about this. Go to gatewaybaptist.com slash life groups. You can see more about those and let us know if you'd like to be connected with that. We mentioned last week Operation Christmas Child. It's an amazing outreach opportunity just to pack a show shoebox of toys that goes to unreached peoples around the world to help get the gospel around the world. Those are already available. I know it's not Christmas yet, but we have them available because there's back-to-school sales that some of you guys like to start shopping early. If you want to get a box, they're in the hall outside the church office. Feel free to grab one. Now, one last announcement for us this morning. That is for the kids, for boys and girls in first to fourth grade. Kids' worship resumes today. So um, I see some excitement from mine over there. But to first to fourth graders, you're welcome to kids' worship today. After the prayer time, right before the sermon, Rick Steen, one of our elders, is going to be leading kids' worship this week. You'll just go to these double wide doors here, and he will take you over there to the gym building for kids' worship during the sermon. Now, I know that's a lot for the morning, but I want us to focus our mind on the Lord. So can I ask you to stand, please? I want to read from God's Word as we prepare to sing to the Lord who is so worthy of praise. We're going to sing this morning, starting off with the song, Open Up the Heavens. And just this line of this song is your glory awakening with desire. Friends, we come in very distracted for many of us today. Distracted with the needs of our friends with COVID. Distracted with people who are sick. Distracted with other burdens. It's so easy to come in here with our minds on so many other things. We want to focus on the Lord this morning. So I want to read to us from Psalm 27. Just several verses from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Down in verse 4 of Psalm 27 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And I want to, the very last verse of Psalm 27, be, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Friends, I'm praying this morning for all of us that God will give us grace to put aside whatever things are distracting us and burdens are on our heart this morning just to focus on Him, rejoice in Him, and see how worthy and good He is. Let's sing to the Lord together this morning.
Show us your glory. Show us, show us your power. Show us, show us your glory, Lord. Show us, show us your glory. Show us, show us your power. Show us, show us your glory, Lord.
God of ages, step down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me His own. Beautiful Savior, I'm Yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living Lord. Hallelujah, praise the One who said, its grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name Jesus Christ my living hope came the morning that sealed the promise your very body Begin to breathe out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on Jesus. Shining 
Father, we want to say you are our living hope, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I'm thinking of this in Romans 8, 1 and 2, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Father, we thank you that we can come before your throne of grace in time of need. There was this great chasm between us, and it was due to our sin and our rebellion. And you bridged that chasm through Jesus Christ, who lived the life we could not live, suffered and died and then rose again. He, our Savior, conquered death and hell and redeemed us from the curse of sin. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us free from the law of sin and death. Lord, this morning as we gather, we bring our requests to you, knowing that, Lord, there's a lot going on in our lives. We think of those in our church who are sick. We pray for our elders and for others who are struggling with COVID. We pray for their quick recovery. And we ask, Lord, that you would give them grace. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of hopes. And this Wednesday, as we had the opportunity to minister to Capitol Heights Middle School, we thank you for the opportunity that we have there. We pray for Principal Harrison and the teachers as they begin a new school season on Monday. We ask God that you would bless them, give them grace, encourage them. Pray for the teachers that you would give them strength and that that you would, Lord, use them. Uh, The challenges that come with the environment that we're in, I just pray, God, that you would give them wisdom. We pray for all the teachers in this, in our our faith group here in this church. We pray that you would bless and encourage them. Lord, I pray for Young Meadows in the ministry over here with Pastor Jay. Thank you for what you're doing in his life and how you're using them. And I pray, Lord, for that ministry that you continue to bless and encourage that church. May they see much fruit in their ministries. And Lord, for Pastor Jay as he leads, that God, you would give him wisdom and grace. Lord, this morning we also want to pray for global missions. And we think this morning of those who are suffering in Haiti. We pray for Pastor Mark Lovius and we pray for his ministry there. God, that you would be near to him and encourage him. We pray also, Lord, for those who have been impacted by this earthquake. Lord, those who are suffering, we ask, God, that you would be near to them. We pray for the churches in the area, God, that they would reach out and minister. May this be a great opportunity that the gospel would go forth in the midst of much suffering. God, Lord, we just pray that you would be merciful and gracious to those who have been Lord, this morning as we give and as we think about the giving that uh, has has been given to this church, we pray that you would take it and you would use it and you would multiply it. Lord, we want to use our resources, be good stewards of what we have to further your kingdom. So we pray that you would take it and use it and that, Lord, it would bless many others and, Lord, that it would be used to further your kingdom. This morning as we prepare our hearts, as we've been preparing our hearts, as we've been singing uh, these truths, Lord, I pray you would do a work in our heart as we are preparing to hear your your word. And that, Lord, this morning as Grady preaches, that you would anoint him with your spirit. That, God, you'd give him clarity of thought, and that as he proclaims your truth, that we would receive it, Lord, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. And that, Lord, we would grow in the grace and knowledge of you. We thank you again for your love for us. We thank you for the body. We thank you for the gospel. And, Lord, we thank you this time that we have to worship you. And now may you be glorified in the worship as the word of God is proclaimed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite the kids for Children's Church.
Thanks, Rick. And boys and girls, first to fourth grade, you are invited to head to kids' worship this morning as you keep going through the Gospel Project curriculum you guys are working through. I hope you guys have a great time this morning. Well, Gateway Fam, I want you to find Ephesians chapter 5 in your copy of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Now, if you've been around Gateway a while, this is a book that we studied in depth four years ago. But we're going to return to it this morning because it gives one of the clearest answers to the next question we're coming to in our study of seeking to be rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're using something called a catechism to guide our study. Now, a catechism is just a big word for a series of questions and answers to help us understand what we believe. And we're using a catechism called the New City Catechism. If you don't have a copy, there's a table in the back of the sanctuary in the resource center in the hall, the table in the lobby, the table in the gym building. They're all over campus. We want you to take one and have it. There's no cost to it for you. We want you to have that to use it to help you review this. And as we're working through the catechism, we've been in some heavy topics this summer. This is not exactly a feel-good summer at Gateway, is it, in terms of the topics that we've hit. We've been most of the summer in what we call the law, the commandments of God. And we spent a whole summer looking at the commandments of God because we so desperately need to know it. Because as we look at the commandments of God, we see God's will. He's very clear of how we relate to Him and how we're to relate to one another. As we study the commandments of God, we see the character of God because the commandments simply reflect His character and who He is. But we also study the commandments because the commandments of God show us our desperate condition. And for the last several weeks after we finished up the commandments, we've been focusing on our desperate condition. We've seen how we're unable to keep the law, how we consistently break God's law in our words, in our thoughts, and in our actions. We see how we're born this way, how we're born guilty, how we're born with a sin nature, how we're born sinners. Then two weeks ago, we defined sin. We defined sin in terms of rebellion against God. The sin is us shaking our fist at God, saying, not your way, but mine. And then last week, William, who's one of our elders, defined idolatry for us and helped us see that idolatry is a loving God with less than our whole selves. That idolatry is putting faith in anything besides God. If you think about all that we've seen over these last several months, what becomes really clear to us is if we look at our own lives in the last week, if we're honest, in the last 24 hours, there's sin in our lives, isn't there? There's things that we have done our way instead of God's way. And even beyond just the sin, there's idols in our heart. There's idols in our affections that have led us to do things our way. There's things in our lives that we've loved more than God. There are things in our lives this week where we saw our identity in more than our identity in Christ. There's things that we've given more attention to than we've given attention to God. And so as we think about that, the truth of 1 John 1.8 is very clear for us. That if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As we look at our lives over the last week, and even over the last 24 hours, friends, we have sin in our lives. We have idolatry in our lives. In light of all that, the next question we come to in our study of being rooted ground the Word is a very weighty one, just like the others are. And it's, this is our question for today. I want you to see it on the screen. Will God allow anyone's disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? Will God allow anyone's disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? I have sin in my life, you have sin in your life. We have disobedience, we have idolatry in our hearts. And will God allow anyone's disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? Perhaps the, the weightier question is, will God allow any of the sin in my life and your life to go unpunished? Now we're going to find the answer to our questions in the book of Ephesians this morning. Now because we're jumping around and looking at different books of the Bible in our study, unlike what we normally do going through a single book of the Bible, let me remind you a little bit about Ephesians so we understand what we're reading this morning. The book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to believers, to Christians, in the town of Ephesus, in the house churches around that city. And when Paul wrote Ephesians, he had two things in view. He wanted to remind people who they were in Christ. So we look at Ephesians, if you're OCD, it's very beautiful because it's symmetrical. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about who you are in Christ. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all about how you live 
because of who you are in Christ. So he has this like perfect symmetry, this book, three chapters about who you are in Christ. And then his second goal is chapters 4, 5, and 6 is to show us how our lives are different because of our identity in Christ. If you remember from our journey through Ephesians several years ago, when you hit chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul gets very, very specific about what godly living looks like. He gets very specific about what it looks like to follow Christ, to live out our identity in Christ. And he addresses many issues of practical holiness. So once you go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to, our main text this morning is going to be later in verse 5. But I want you just to see what Paul's saying before we get to our text today to make sure we understand the context of what we're reading this morning. If you go back to verse five, verse, chapter 5, verse 1, Paul's telling us practical holiness should look like this in our lives. These are things we should be doing. Verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he tells in those first two verses that if, because we're new in Christ, because we have a new identity in Christ, this is what our lives should look like. We should be different. We should be loving. We should be trying to copy God in our behavior. We should put these things on. And then in verses 3 and 4, he tells us things we should put off from our life. Verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Whether there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanks. Giving. And so the context for where we're coming to this morning is Paul was telling us how our lives are different because we are followers of Jesus. And then where we come to this morning, we're focusing on verses 5 and 6. Paul now reminds us of how God views sin, how God views things when we do not follow these commands, when we do the things that he says do not do. How does God view it? So we come to verses 5 and 6 this morning to answer our question, will God allow anyone's disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God as we read our text this morning? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. We will also have the words up on the screen for you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful for the parts of your word that give us much encouragement and hope. And we're also thankful for the parts of your word that show us areas of conviction, that show us how you view sin, these tougher texts sometimes. And yet, Lord, we're grateful that you've revealed yourself to us and you've made it very clear to us. So I pray this morning, Lord, as we study your word that it would come alive to us, that you would show us how these truths should shape us and form us and mold us into being the people that you desire us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So our question for the morning, will God allow anyone's disobedience, anyone's sin to go unpunished? Here's the answer I want you to see from Ephesians 5. Simply this. God is righteously angry with sins and will punish them both in this life and in the life to come. So how does God view sin? God is righteously angry with sins. And he will punish them both in this life and in the life to come. How's that for a feel-good message for the morning, right? There's a lot to that, and it's also important for us. Here you see God's attitude to sin, his view of sin, and it's a righteous anger. When we think of anger, so often we think of sinful anger. But it's a righteous anger, a good anger, a holy anger that God has. But it's not just a feeling he has. He expresses it, and God not only feels righteous anger towards sin, he punishes sins both in this life and in the life. To come. Now, our text today from Ephesians 5 focuses on that latter part of God's punishment for sins, both in this life and the life to come. So I want to take one step back this morning to make sure we understand how God views our sin. Because friends, we're going to be honest, in our culture it becomes really easy to miss this reality. 
If you think about our culture, our culture is obsessed with just one attribute of God, and that's the love of God. And yes, friends, we don't want to miss that. Scripture is very clear, First John 4, that God is love. That's part of who God is. But we get it out of balance in our culture so much. We th- focus on the love of God, and we miss the justice of God, the wrath of God, how he views sin. But the Scripture shows us that God is a God of love, but Scripture also shows us that God is righteously angry towards sin. We have a great book in the Resource Center, on the top left shelf, called The Attributes of God. And the author of that book says something that is really striking, and I have to trust him on this because I've not counted verses for myself. But here's what he says. He says, There are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and his tenderness. There are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and his tenderness. Friends, we need to let that sink in. We don't want to miss God's love and tenderness. God is holding us, and He loves us as His children. And we want to celebrate that, and we want to focus on that, but we don't want to get that out of balance and also miss the fact of how God views sin. And all throughout Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is very clear how God views sin. So how does He view sin? Well, there's a lot of places we can look to find the answer, but I want, but I want you to see it up on the screen. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6. Do you see what God says to His people in terms of how He views sin? He says, Know therefore that the Lord your God... Now, just stop right there. This is, he's talking to the people of Israel, his chosen people, the people that he loved, that he set his affections on, that he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He had blessed this people. In many ways, these are people that God loved. He's about to take them into the promised land. But notice he says, Know, for, know therefore the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. So he warns them as they're about to go take the promised land. They're not getting this land because they're such great, amazing people. They can't say, they enter the promised land like, wow, we are so holy, God's going to bless us with this. No, he says... You're not getting the promised land because you're righteous. Rather, you are a stubborn people. Look at God's view of his people. They are a stubborn people. Like us, friends, God's people then were continually rebellious. They were sinners. They had idols in their heart. They kept choosing their sin over God's way. They kept shaking their fist at God, not literally, but in their hearts saying, I'm going to live life my way, not your way, Lord. And look at what God says about the sin of his own people. Look at verse number 7 now. This is probably not a verse that we have on our coffee mugs at work, right? Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to what? To what? To wrath. Okay. You Remember, you've provoked the Lord your God to wrath. And it was from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Now verse 8, he goes on. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to what? To wrath. And the Lord was so what? angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Again, not the verse you frame or put on your coffee mug, right? But this is what the Bible says, how God viewed the sin of his people. He had wrath. He had anger towards sin. Now, that's an important word. What do we mean by the word wrath? That's not the word we think about. That's not the word we hear much. When we say wrath, we simply mean God's intense, holy hatred of sin. Wrath is just simply God's intense, holy hatred of of sin. Now we again need to let that sink in. God hates sin. Sin is never okay with God. God never tolerates sin. God never excuses sin. God never permits sin. God detests sin. You see, there's this wrong idea that gets floated around a lot today that in the Old Testament, God was a wrathful, vengeful God, and in the New Testament, He's a God of mercy. But that's not the case. God is unchanging in who He is. We saw this when we studied the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 17 reminds us of this truth that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now notice this. With whom there is no variation 
or shadow due to change. There's not a God of the Old Testament, a God of the New Testament. God is God, and He's always been fully who He is. So God hated sin of Adam and Eve. He hated the sin of the people of Israel when they rebelled. He hated the sin of King David. He hated the sin of the surrounding pagan nations. He hated the sin when His disciples lacked faith and doubt. He hated the sin in the early church when a couple lied before the church. And so, in fact, He struck them dead. Acts 5. That's a fun story for another day. But He hates the sin in my life and your life as well. God is a God who does not change. God hates sin. He always has, and he always will. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. Again, I doubt any of us have this one framed at our house, right? God is a righteous judge and a God who feels what? What does he feel? And he feels it how often? Every way. Every day. God is a righteous judge. He's holy. He's perfect. And therefore, he feels indignation. He feels wrath. He feels a holy, good, just anger towards sin every day because there is sin every day. Because we need to remind ourselves this is not a bad thing. When we think of anger, we think of our sinful anger. When I'm mad and I'm not getting my way and I take it out on someone, that's not how it is with God. God's anger is a perfect, holy, righteous anger. So there's nothing sinful about God's anger because He is holy. Friends, God is perfect. God cannot be holy and be okay with sin. He can't be holy and be like, well, I'll be okay with it. It's not that big of a deal in that situation. His holiness, His perfection requires Him to hate sin in every situation. So God's attitude to sin is that he is righteously angry with every sin, regardless of whose sin it is and when it happened in history. God is righteously angry with sin. As I mentioned in the answer to our question earlier, he's not only angry with sin, he expresses that anger in the form of punishment, that God will punish every sin. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5, our main text for this morning. Go back to verse number 5 here. See how Paul kind of introduces this as he's listing what walking in holiness looks like. He says, For you may be sure of this, and now he lists several sins here. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, why is he only talking about these particular sins here? Maybe thinking, well, I'm okay on these, so I'm fine. God doesn't care about lying or whatever, or fear or whatever else. It's okay. No, what he's doing here is he's giving examples he already mentioned. But notice what he does here. He starts with the obvious external sins, the sexual immorality, any sexual expression outside of marriage. But he doesn't stop with sin just being the externals. He moves it to, to thoughts as well. He says any impurity. Impurity is a word in the Greek that means inappropriate sexual thoughts. So he's saying it's not just enough. It's not just a sin if you do it outwardly. If you think it and it's the wrong thought, that's him. But he takes it one step further. He also broadens it to our desires. Whoever who is covetousness, whoever desires what they do not have in sinful ways, he says those are idols. So what he's doing here is giving us an example to say if you sin in ways that are obvious... If you sin in your mind in ways that only God knows, if you sin in your affections that you may not even fully understand, but God sees that, God is going to see that sin and God hates that sin, whether it's outward or internal. He says this at the beginning, it's, you may be sure of this. Now don't miss that phrase, this is kind of fun, our English loses a little bit of the force of this. When this was written in Greek, it was actually two different words for knowing that Paul puts together. So more literally this would be, you know this because you know that. Or, you know that you know. Paul is just making this point that you can be surely confident of what falls after this. You can be confident in how God views sin. You can be confident that God is going to punish every single sin. Even sins of the thoughts and affections that no one else sees. God will punish every sin. So that raises the question, when does the punishment come? And we said in our answer earlier, God is angry with sins and he's going to punish them both in this life and in the life to come. So let's start with the life to come. Punishment in eternity. Go back to verse 5 here. He answers that and points that to us in the last part of this verse. He says to us, They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, we talk about the kingdom of God. We're talking about His rule over all things. 
When it's used in connection with inheritance here, it's speaking of those who follow him. An inheritance is something you receive from your parents, right? And so your inheritance in the kingdom of God is when God gives to you a belonging in his kingdom. When God gives you the promise of forever being with him in his presence, forever being blessed as children, having eternal life with Christ here. And Paul is being very direct and very warning in warning us here, saying that people who love their sin, people who are okay with their sin and tolerate their sin and don't think their sin is a big deal, he says they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They have no assurance of the blessing of heaven and eternal life with God. But if we say that truth, we need to remember the other side of the coin, the related truth. They're not going to receive heaven, but what are they going to receive? The church says they're going to receive hell. They're going to receive eternal condemnation, the eternal, the eternal experience of wrath with God, wrath from God for, for their just punishment for their rebellion. And we're going to go more into this in October, so you can mark your calendar. So we have a whole sermon on what is hell coming up and what is judgment looking like. But let's be remiss if we don't mention it here. Matthew chapter 25, verse 6, that we see a little bit of a glimpse of what is described here. For these will go away. These are people who do not belong to God, who do not believe in Him, have not repented their sins. They will go away into eternal punishment. And so the flip side of what we're seeing here in Ephesians 5 is that those who love their sin instead of loving Jesus, they have no hope of heaven. Instead, they can expect eternal condemnation. Their sins are that offensive to the holiness of God that it takes eternity to pay for them. But it's not just a future tense. That punishment comes in this life as well. Look at the very next verse in Ephesians 5. Go back to verse 6. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God, notice this, not will come, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is present tense in the Greek meaning. It's already here. That the wrath of God already is upon those who do not believe in Him. He calls them the sons of disobedience. The people who love their sin instead of loving God. Who want to live for themselves instead of living for God. The people who have never trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Those people already are experiencing the wrath of God, though they may not know it yet. They already stand guilty. They already stand condemned. They already are facing the judgment of God. And this is not the only place in the church you see this. You see this all throughout Scripture. In fact, you see it in John 3. If you go to John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, right? God so loved the world, and that's why we like this verse so much, because we see the love of God. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So again, you already have in John 3.16 this warning to us, that if we're not trusting in Christ, we will perish. But later on, Jesus explains in these verses what happens. Two verses later, John 3.18, you see a little more explanation of this. John 3.18, whoever believes in Him and Jesus is not condemned... And this is, but whoever does not believe in Jesus, whoever's not trusting in Him as their Lord and their Savior, is condemned already because he's not believing the name of the only Son of God. They're already condemned. Yes, there's more judgment coming in the day of judgment, but they already are under the judgment of God. He goes on verse 19 to explain for us. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Then in verse 20, he carries on. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to light, lest his works should be exposed. And if you go all the way down towards the end of the chapter, John chapter 3, verse 36, I want you to see that one as well. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God, notice this next word, remains on him. That they already are under the judgment of God. God is righteously angry with sins, and is going to punish all sins, both in this life and in the life to come. Now friends, that truth is not popular, is it? 
That truth is not the things that, is so, that people want to celebrate. Hence, there's a real danger of not believing this truth, of being deceived about this. People then and now, because human nature has not changed, want to do all they can to explain away the justice of God, explain away the wrath of God, and try to convince us there's a God who's kind of like the grandfather who just smiles when you make a mistake in sin and doesn't really care that much. And that's the popular view, the idea that there's a God who's too loving to ever judge anyone, a God who's too loving to ever send anyone to hell. But that's not just a new danger in our culture. It was a danger when Paul wrote this in 62 AD. So he tells us there in verse number 6, go back to Ephesians 5, 6, let no one do what? What's the next word? What's the next word? Deceived. There's a chance for us as believers to be deceived, to be deceived that God hates sin, to be deceived that God is going to punish sin. And so if anyone ever tells us that God is too loving to ever judge or condemn anyone, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. It's an empty word to believe that God does not care about our sin. And so therefore, because it's easy to be deceived, you go back to verse 5 of Ephesians, and he tells us this very strong word. You may be sure of this. You may know that you know. So we need to be rooted in what the Word of God says, that God is righteously angry towards sin, and God will punish sins both in this life and in the life to come. So that's the truth. The question now is, what do you do with that truth? It's not exactly an easy truth or a happy truth or a fun truth. So what do we do with this truth? Well, it depends on whether or not we believe. So let me speak to those of you who are not followers of Jesus. If you've never trusted in Christ, Christ alone is your Lord and Savior, what does this truth about God's view to sin mean for you? It means you need to repent of your sins. By repenting of your sins, we mean you need to recognize that you've offended God. You've not sinned against yourself. You've sinned against God. It's His standards that you have broken. You need to repent of those sins and run to Him for His forgiveness and asking Him to be your boss, your Lord, and your Savior. Romans 2 reminds us of how much we deserve the judgment of God. In Romans chapter 2, verse 2, I think we have that one up there for you. We know that the judgment of God, notice this, rightly falls on those who practice such things. So when God judges sinners, he's not unjust, he's not being cruel, he's not being mean, he's doing what is right. In his holiness, he's judging sin. So we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now go to verse 3, what follows. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, will escape the judgment of God? Now he's speaking of the religious leaders here. He's reminding them that they, even though they're religious and doing all these external things, they still will face the judgment of God because they don't really believe. Now verse 4, here's a key verse for us. Do you presume on the riches of his, God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? To repentance. That God is calling the non-believers to repent, to acknowledge that He is God, to acknowledge that they've offended His holiness, to acknowledge they've broken His standard, and to repent. Repentance means you're turning, you're changing, you're seeking His grace to be different because of that and to follow Him. Repentance is turning to the Lord. I love how Tim Keller says it so well. He says, we are far worse than we ever imagined ourselves to be. We are far worse than we ever imagined ourselves to be. And that's what Romans reminds us. That's what this truth tells us, that we are far more sinful than we like to think about ourselves being. But what Tim Keller goes on to say is we are far more loved than we could ever dream. We are far more loved than we could ever dream. And that's this offer of repentance, that God loves us so much, He has made a way for us to not have to endure His wrath. That he will punish every sin. God is never going to look at a sin and be like, ah, I'm going to let that one go. Every sin is going to be punished. Either we're going to receive the punishment we deserve, or Christ is going to take it in our place. I love how Galatians 3 reminds that. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. How is it possible that God can punish every sin and us escape his wrath? It says, well, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That we don't have to experience the curse, the wrath of God. Why? Because he became a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who's hanged on a tree. 
The Christ, the God, when he looks at us, isn't like, ah, that sin's not so bad, I'm going to ignore it. Rather, he takes that sin and he puts it on Jesus so that every sin is punished. Either the person who committed the sin will be punished for sin, or they've put it, or God has put that sin on Christ, and Christ takes the punishment for us. It goes on in verse 14 in Galatians 3, in the very next verse, reminds us, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He calls us to repent, to put our faith in Him, and He's willing to take all of our offenses against Him and not overlook them, but punish them, but not punish them, but punish them by putting them on Christ and pouring out His wrath, His punishment on Christ instead. So if you're listening online or here in this room today, it's because of God's kindness to you. If you've never trusted Christ, He's giving you another opportunity to repent, to acknowledge that He is God, to seek His forgiveness, and to seek to follow Him. But how does this truth affect us if you're already a follower of Christ? I know many, many of you in this room, most of you, how does this affect you if you are a follower of Christ? What is this truth that God hates sin, that God's going to punish sin? How does this truth affect us? There's a lot we can say. I want to give you four ways I believe this truth impacts us. Number one, it should lead us to rejoice that we don't have to fear God's wrath. Because this truth should lead us to joy and to worship and to awe of the fact that we do not ever have to fear the wrath of God. Not because God overlooks our sin, but because God's already taken our sin and put it on Christ. And when Christ hung on that cruel Roman cross and he cries out, it is finished, he has experienced the wrath in a moment there that you and I should have experienced for all eternity and he can forgive us for it. It's what we sing in the song in Christ alone when we sing the wrath of God was satisfied God's wrath wasn't just put aside. God's wrath that we should have experienced in hell forever got put on Christ in that moment. He cried out, it is finished because he's paid the penalty that you and I should have paid. That should lead us to be in awe and to worship. Of how Hebrews 12 says it. Hebrews 12 verse 28 points out to us this truth and shows us our response. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're to be grateful for this kingdom, this inheritance we have, this, this promise of eternity in heaven forever with God. We need to be grateful for receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Friends, when we think about the fact that we have sinned and we deserve hell and we deserve the righteous anger of God forever against our sin because of our rebellion and our idolatry, and we think that Christ gladly, joyfully, willingly took it for us so that we can be free of us, it should lead us to be grateful, to acceptable worship, to reverence and awe that we are worshiping a God who has redeemed us and we didn't have to do that. But he goes on in verse 29 to help us not forget this other part of God's scripture. For God is a consuming fire. We are worshiping and in awe of the one who is a consuming fire, who is a just, holy God, who in his infinite wisdom found a way to forgive us of all of our sins without in any way compromising his justice. He still poured out his wrath on every sin. We just don't have to endure it because of his wise plan to put it on Christ for all those who will follow him. It should lead us to, number one, to rejoice. But number two, friends, this truth should lead us to pursue practical holiness. This should lead us to pursue practical holiness. This is not a legalism of I'm going to try to be good to get to God, but if we understand how God views sin, if we understand that all of our sin has been put on Christ, that should not lead us to go sin more. That should help us realize how much God detests and hates sin, and it should lead us to desire to obey Him, to not sin, not to get to Him, but because we already belong to Him. We've looked at this text many times through the law, but I want to remind us of this, but Romans chapter 6 Verses 1 through 4. It's such an incredible reminder of God's grace and how we respond. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. I think we have that one up there for you. There you go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, Paul understands there's people who are going to be like, wait, wait, if I'm forgiven of every sin, why don't I just go sin some more? It's not going to make a difference. It's already been paid for. I can just go live like I want, right? And Paul says, should we do that? Verse 2, he gives the answer. By no means. 
let's put it in capital no, exclamation point, exclamation point, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still, still live in it? Verse 3, he carries on. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, verse 4, he keeps going. We are therefore buried with him and by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? In newness of life, that we're not to continue in sin. Yes, we've been rescued from the wrath of God. Yes, we never have to fear the wrath of God, but that does not lead us to be permissive towards sin in our life. It should lead us to hate sin in our life. God hates sin, and we should hate our own sin as well. So it should lead us to rejoice that we do not have to experience God's wrath. Number two, it should lead us to pursue practical holiness. Number three, though, it should give us hope when we see or experience injustice. It should give us hope when we see or experience injustice. Friends, we live in a really broken world, don't we? We see it in the news everywhere we turn. Injustices, and it seems like people are getting away with sins, and it seems like the evil seems to be growing. I mean, we just sang about it a few minutes ago. Do you feel the world is broken? And we answered, we do. Do you feel like the darkness is deepening? And we do. So how do we respond to all that injustice around us? Friends, we can either despair, we can try to take it in our own hands, or we can realize that God is going to punish every sin. That no one is going to get away with wrongdoings. They're not going to escape it. I want you to see this in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, if you haven't figured it out, is my favorite psalm. So I quote it a lot. So if you're new to Gateway, you'll hear Psalm 73 a lot in the years to come. But Psalm number 73, I want you to see what happens. This is Asaph is writing this. He was one of the worship leaders in the temple at the time of King David. Asaph says, For me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, why were his steps slipping? Verse 3, he tells us what his struggle was. For I was envious of the arrogant... When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he saw all the injustices happening. He's like, but wait, these, these people who are celebrating their sin, who are doing the injustice, they seem to be thriving, and God's people seem to be struggling. Where is justice in all of this? So how does he find hope in this? Verse 16 of Psalm 73. I'm going to read verse 16 through 24. Yeah, I think we got up there. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Now, verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So what is it when he sees injustice? What is it that changes him in the sanctuary of God? He sees what's going to happen to the wicked one day. Verse 18, he tells us what that is. Truly, God, you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. Now, verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He's saying they have no hope of surviving the judgment of God. And though injustice may look like it's still winning right now, in the scope of eternity, injustice will not win. That every wrong will be taken care of. And so we can conclude in verse 27 of Psalm 73, further down in the psalm. It says, For behold, those who are far from you shall, with certainty, they will perish. You'll put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Friends, I know many of you have been wronged at the hands of other people. You struggle with the injustices and hurts you see in the world. And this truth about how God views sin becomes a reminder to us that we don't have to despair or do we have to take vengeance into our hands that there's a holy God who will judge every sin and every sin will be given an account for and taken care of one day. But there's one last thing that I believe this truth should do to us as believers. Number four, it should lead us to pray for and share the hope of Jesus with the lost. It should lead us to pray for and share the hope of Jesus with the lost. The very next verse in Psalm 73, verse 28, look at what Asaph says. Once he gets his mind around the fate of the lost and his security and who God is, he says, for me, it is good to be near God. I made the Lord God my refuge. But notice this, that I may tell, that I may proclaim, and I may shout forth all of your works. That he understands his security in God. He also understands the fate of the lost around him. And it leads him to want to share that message with others. Friends, I, when you look at the surveys of, of American Christians, we struggle 
with making Christ known to the lost. Think about it in terms of evangelism, making Christ known in our neighborhoods, in terms of missions, taking the gospel, then reach people groups. Believers say, hey, we struggle to be bold in our witness for the most part. And I can't help but wonder if one reason we struggle so much in making Christ known is we've lost sight of the holiness of God. We've lost sight of the wrath of God. We really somehow have forgotten the fact that all those who are apart from Christ will face the wrath of God, not only under the wrath of God now, but for all eternity. And so perhaps we fail to pray for them. Perhaps we fail to get into deeper relationships with them. Perhaps we fail to share the good news of them because we really don't remember how God views sin. But the good news, friends, if there's non-believers around us, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, as we start the new school year, in our workplaces, God has them there by his sovereign design for us to do what Asaph did, to tell of all of his works there in our lives that we can be a mouthpiece to point them to the hope of Christ because God desires for them to repent and believe as well. So he's put us in their lives to point them to the hope of Christ. And so the question is, will we make the most of that opportunity? So I bring all that together. Our question for the morning, will God allow anyone's disobedience, anyone's idolatry to go unpunished? The answer back, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this. You may know that you know that you know that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and anyone who externally sins, thinks sinful thoughts, has sinful desires, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Therefore, friends, let no one deceive you with empty words. God's too loving to do this. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes even now on the sons of disobedience. So will God allow sin to go unpunished? The answer is clearly no. God is righteously angry with sins. He's going to punish them both in this life and in the life to come. So if you're here today or if you're watching online and you've never trusted Christ, today is a reminder it's not too late. God in his mercy has let you be here today, not trusting in your baptism, not trusting in praying some prayer, but in trusting the fact that Christ is willing to redeem you if you call on him in faith and seek to live for him. But friends, for those of you who are in Christ, I pray this hard truth today of how God views sin will, number one, give you joy. Remember that you don't have to fear these things, that Christ has taken the curse for us. But I pray he'll give us new resolve to desire to fight sin in our lives, not to get to God, but because we already belong to him. I pray he'll give us hope when life is hard, knowing that God is a righteous judge who will see all things. But I pray especially as we start a new school year and kind of the freshness of a new year ahead and school and work, that it will give us a new burden for the lost. Because God's put people around us that we might make him known. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for your word, even when it's hard truths like this, when you remind us that you hate sin, that you detest sin, that you feel righteous anger towards sin, and that you express wrath to sin. Lord, I pray this truth would not be something that is repulsive to us, but God, I pray this truth would help us understand how holy and perfect and glorious and majestic and awesome you are. Lord, I pray this truth would not just be some intellectual curiosity for us, your people, but God, this truth would lead to joy in our hearts, knowing that this is what you have rescued us from. I pray it would lead to us having hope in life. I pray it would lead to us hating our own sin. We might seek to walk in holiness with you, but God, I pray it would also lead us to have fresh eyes to see those around us. Lord, perhaps there are lost people around us that annoy us and bother us, and that, Lord, I pray you would turn our hearts to show compassion to them instead, to see them as people who need a Savior, and that you've given us the message of hope to share with them. So, Lord, we ask that this truth would sanctify us and grow us and make us into who you desire for us to be as your people, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, as we close this morning, we're going to sing a song by design, a song that's called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's a remake of the old hymn. We're singing it this morning because this is heavy, weighty stuff. And I want us to take this truth and use this truth to turn our eyes to who Jesus is. We're going to sing in this song, Turn Your Eyes to the Hillside, where justice and mercy embrace 
There's a Son of God gave His life for us and our measureless debt was erased. I pray that will be rejoicing in your heart as you sing that. That our measureless debt that should have been paid for all eternity got paid for on the cross where justice and mercy embrace. We're going to sing as well, Turn Your Eyes to the Morning and see Christ the Lion awake. What a glorious dawn. The fear of death is gone. We carry His life in our veins. So as we think about God, how God views sin, as we think about the freedom we have in Christ, let's worship Him together. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning and rejoice in the fact that our measureless debt was erased.
we ask that you would help us to do that, to turn our eyes to you, or to see your mercy and your grace, and yet to see what we've been rescued from. Lord, I pray that that truth that I read from Tim Keller this week would be true in our hearts, that we'd realize we are far worse than we ever imagined. But yet, Lord, for us in Christ, I pray we'd also realize that we are far more loved than we could ever dream. So, Lord, for those in the Gateway family who are really struggling with guilt and shame and feelings of the accusations of the enemy coming at them, I pray that you would help them understand they've been rescued from that and to help them understand how loved they are by you, but far more they could ever dream of. But for those who have been struggling with allowing sins in their life and becoming permissive and tolerant towards certain sins, I pray there would be a God-given gracious conviction from you to realize how you view sin, that we might repent of those sins and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So whatever situation we find ourselves in this week, whether it's a good day or a hard day, whether it's some trial we're walking through or some time of ease, that in all situations you would give us grace, Lord, to turn our eyes to you, to see your beauty, to see your glory, and to find hope in that, knowing that you are holding us and that no one can snatch us out of our hands. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.